This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up... Champion javelin thrower Fatima Whitbread reveals how competitive sports saved her. Marina Hyde asks why the coronation is being overshadowed by Meghan, Harry and a quiche. And from West End stage to care homes campaigner, Sam Wollaston meets Ruthie Henschel. Before we begin, just a warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, Fatima Whitbread's career encompasses Olympic medalist, sports coach, and now reality TV star, all despite experiencing abuse and trauma as a child. She tells Amina Sena what it takes to be the world's best javelin thrower, survive a breakdown, and bounce back from financial ruin. Read by Arazir. In the latest of the many lives of Fatima Whitbread, the former champion javelin thrower has become a formidable reality TV star, and it suits her. She is surely one good show away from beloved status, which might prove to be the I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here spin-off, in which she is soon to star, alongside a select group of other former participants in the ITV show. She was on I'm a Celeb in 2011, when her nasal cavity became home to a cockroach during one of the challenges. There's definitely something wriggling about in there. And it took an hour for the camp doctor to flush it out. But I liked her best in last year's celebrity SAS, Who Dares Wins, the Channel 4 series in which celebs do special forces training. Whitbread cracked three ribs jumping out of a helicopter, but kept it a secret because she didn't want to leave the show. She was charming, warm, capable and having filmed it at 60, ripped. This morning, she has been out exercising for two hours. She does an hour of cardio or weights every day. Even her Jack Russell Terrier, Bertie, is aging well. 
The vet remarked recently on his good health. They said he's got a heartbeat like an athlete, says Whitbread, smiling. That is what you get when you're owned by an Olympic medalist and former world champion who once broke the women's javelin world record. Bertie sits between us on a large sofa in Whitbread's spotless, clutter-free home in Essex. The only hint at the greatness of her sporting career is a bronze cast of her hand, strong fingers wrapped around a javelin's grip, given to her by Madame Tussauds. Whitbread, aged 62, has led an extraordinary life. This decade has been defined so far by physical and psychological challenges. Last year, as well as the SAS show, she climbed Mont Blanc. About a year ago, for the first time, she started having therapy. Even when she had a breakdown in her 20s, she powered through without professional help. I've realised I've done bloody marvellous without it. But sometimes things trigger and all those childhood years can come back to haunt you, she says. As a baby, Whitbread was abandoned in a flat in London and essentially left to die. After hearing her cries, neighbours called the police. Whitbread recovered in hospital from malnutrition, dehydration and her terrible physical condition, then spent her childhood in children's homes. I felt this deep sense of loss within me, she says. When she was five, she was introduced to her biological mother, having had no idea of her history, and moved to a children's home in Essex where she had two half-siblings. That was the first time I started questioning what was going on in my life and what was to become of me. It was a life of deprivation, physical and emotional. There wasn't enough food and they had few clothes. The children played in a cold garage with a concrete floor. Love and affection were scant. She was abandoned again and again. Occasionally, her biological mother would arrive to take her half-siblings home for a visit, but not Whitbread. Once, the woman she calls the biological mother, never my biological mother, a Turkish Cypriot woman who spoke almost no English, did take her, but changed her mind and sent her back to the home. Whitbread's biological father, a Greek Cypriot, also surfaced. She spent a week with him, with the promise that he would be back to collect her again the weekend after, but he didn't appear. I sat on the front wall for a whole weekend, she says. The second weekend, I did the same thing. I think that cracked me, emotionally. I put these walls up around myself to secure me. The only person who showed Whitbread any love was a woman who worked in the home, known as Auntie Ray. It was Ray who stopped Whitbread's biological mother, who arrived one day with three men from taking her out of the home. Ray's suspicions proved horrifyingly true. At a later date, when her biological mother was able to take her to London for a while, 11-year-old Whitbread was raped by a man who was staying at the flat. Back at the children's home and traumatised, Whitbread refused to go to school. I just became withdrawn. Having not spoken to anyone about it, I felt ashamed, dirty. Eventually, she told Ray what had happened. Whitbread says it was reported, but nothing was done. She was referred to a child psychologist for a couple of weeks. Unbelievable what went on back then. You were never taken seriously. We had a social worker and I would talk to him about it. Nothing ever happened. Nobody took notice of the kids. Is she angry at the system that failed her so spectacularly? Well, it does make me... She pauses. Even today, some of the crazy policies... Ousting kids from care at 16 is appalling. 
My son still lives at home. He's 25. At 16, these are vulnerable kids. At present, councils are allowed to put 16 and 17-year-old children in unregulated accommodation, although a ban on the practice will come into force in October. For a lot of young kids, history starts repeating itself. They start getting in trouble or offending, and it costs the state a whole lot more. These young kids need that support, because once they get out there, they're easily preyed upon. They're still kids. She worries about the cost of living crisis, inequality and poverty. The kids are the ones that are getting the damage done. Sport saved her, she says. It gave me a sense of freedom, forgetting all the problems that were going on in the home and the life we were living. It gave me a sense of achievement, that here was something I was good at. I got validation from my PE teachers and my school friends and started to realise life was a bit more positive. I realised that this could be my way out. Whitbread became the school netball captain and started going to a local athletics club. The javelin coach, Margaret Whitbread, recognised her talent. When she found out Whitbread lived in a children's home, she gave her some second-hand boots and a javelin. When Whitbread was grounded for a month, she managed to get a note to Margaret, fearing the coach would think she had left. She wrote that she hoped Margaret would take her back and that she intended to become the best javelin thrower in the world. It was the start of a dream, says Whitbread. Margaret and her husband eventually fostered Whitbread, who changed her surname, Verdad, by Deedpole. At 14, she finally had a family, which included the Whitbread's two young sons. That was amazing. The best thing that happened to be a part of a family which I'd always wanted, she says. It wasn't straightforward, because all families have their problems both as mum and daughter, an athlete and coach. We worked it out somehow, and we conquered the world. Whitbread began training hard. I started taking more responsibility for myself, she says. You have a whole lot of people that help you, but I've got to get myself out at 5am, down the gym, three times a day training, seven days a week. She trained in a wooden shed at the bottom of the garden of a family friend. She smiles when she talks about how different facilities are now. I wouldn't have had it any other way. I loved every minute of it. Just two years later, in 1979, Whitbread was crowned European Junior Champion, becoming the first British woman to hold the title. At less than 1.65 metres, or 5 feet 5 inches tall, she wasn't built like a champion javelin thrower. But what she lacked in reach, she made up for in determination. I had little room to manoeuvre where making mistakes was concerned, so I had to work exceptionally hard at analysing everybody's techniques and working out the best for me. What made her a good, at one stage, the best thrower? I think the inner strength that I created as a child. If you asked me, would I change anything about my life, I'd say no, because that created who I am. I had steely inner strength and a sense of determination to succeed because of my childhood. I possibly wouldn't have had that otherwise. She pauses. There are some things you would have wanted to change. Whitbread had an incredible career. She was European and world champion and won bronze and silver at the 1984 and 1988 Olympics respectively. In 1986, she broke the world record with a throw of 77.44 metres. That was a monumental experience, says Whitbread. 
As she let go of the javelin, she knew it was a good throw. The hours and hours and hours of work that you put in, in order to get everything to click at the right time on the right day. People told her it was the wrong day. It was the qualifying round for the European Championships, so she had to go back and do it again. I just thought, I'll give it 100% and see what happens. I never allowed all that talk to get into there, she says, pointing at her head. I kept my mindset focused. She didn't manage to break her own record, but threw well enough to take gold. March was made of her rivalry with the other British champion javelin thrower, Tessa Sanderson, who won the gold medal at the 1984 Olympics. Whitbread took bronze. Between us, we achieved everything you could in an event. That's quite an outstanding achievement for a country that wasn't known for its power events, so Tessa and I really flew that flag. The rivalry was real, although Whitbread says her main rival was East Germany's Petra Felka, but the media amped it up. Sanderson, who was a few years older, had been Whitbread's idol. Whitbread says she would have liked to have been friends. I thought there's nothing better than to be able to have a good friendship in an event where you can pull together. But everyone's different, aren't they? The media, what they instigated, it didn't lend itself very well to friendship. Whitbread was aware of the comments in the media about her muscular physique. Did she care about that? It's tools for the job, she says of her body. Had she been taller, maybe her muscles wouldn't have been so noticeable. But she was stubby, she says laughing. But I didn't care, because I loved what I did and that's what it took for me to succeed. I didn't take notice. I was just proud of my work ethos. But sometimes they could be unkind. As a child in the 80s, I say, I loved watching Whitbread and Sanderson. So strong and powerful, like warrior goddesses. She smiles. I think there were a lot of people who felt like that. Her success brought fame and intrusion. The tabloids found her biological mother. The trauma resurfaced. It forced me to have to tell my story. That was really the start of the demise in my athletic career because it brought me to a physical and mental breakdown. While training for the 1988 Olympics, she was also writing a book about her childhood to try to get control of her story. It was awful. I shouldn't have gone to that Olympics, but I managed to pull on all my reserves and I came away with the silver medal. In the run-up, when she should have been training hard, she lost all sense of time. My procrastination was terrible. When I was throwing, it was all over the place. 30 metres, 40 metres, 70 metres. A shoulder injury, made worse by Whitbread's inability to train properly, ended her career officially in 1992. It was eight years short, really, she says. It was a big loss. For three or four years after that, when I went to championships, I would be watching with sadness, because I probably would still have been out there winning. She had wanted more gold medals, including an Olympic one, and was aiming to throw more than 80 metres. I think I could have done. But it wasn't about the medals, she says. The sense of loss, of identity and purpose, and then having to reinvent yourself in something that fills that void and the passion you had, is very hard. She went into sports marketing and did coaching and development. In 1997, she married Andy Norman, the controversial athletics promoter with whom she had a son, Ryan, a year later. 
Norman had been implicated by the coroner in the 1994 suicide of Cliff Temple, a Sunday Times journalist who had been investigating Norman's conduct as promotions officer of the British Athletics Federation. After her traumatic childhood, she was determined that her sons would be different. I felt I would be a good mom, she says. I believed in myself. It was important for me to be able to prove that I could be a good mom and break the mold of what I'd been through. She and Norman had experienced years of infertility followed by a miscarriage before their son was born via a third round of IVF. Norman left her for another athlete when Ryan was small, although he and Whitbread managed to remain close. Then in 2007, he died suddenly, leaving Whitbread to raise Ryan alone. On top of that, it emerged that Norman had taken out loans, partly in Whitbread's name, which put her tens of thousands of pounds in debt. She had to sell the family home. The fees from reality TV kept her afloat and helped her rebuild her profile. She seems content, although a long friendship ended recently, which has saddened her. It's not until something goes wrong in your life that everything else starts to come back and chase you. This is why she will stick at the therapy. She has found some kind of acceptance. The older she has got, she says, the more she has realised that life is about absorbing the good and the bad, learning from both and still moving forward. She made a choice, she says, not to feel angry or bitter. That's only damaging to yourself. It blurs your vision. It doesn't allow you to progress. When I go back and talk to the five-year-old or the 11-year-old Fatima, I take her by the hand and say, don't worry, I've got you now. That was Your Childhood Can Haunt You. Fatima Whitbread on trauma, triggers, therapy, and how sports saved her. By Amina Sena. Read by Arazu. We'll be back after this short break. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Welcome back to Weekend. Next, Marina Hyde looks ahead to the coronation and asks why the build-up to this monumental event has been characterised by commemorative mugs, a tarragon quiche and 4,000 articles about two California residents. Read by Branny Rule.
In the week before Harry and Meghan's wedding, I watched a woman in the Kensington Palace shop buy a mug that featured the entwined initials of the couple and retailed at £39. I love how down to earth they are, she said. I wonder where that mug is now. The cup, not the woman. There will always be new mugs, of course, and the Royal Collection is currently selling a coronation tankard for £50, as well as such essentials as a £40 bone china coronation pillbox finished in 22-carat gold, possibly in keeping with King Charles' oft-stated mission to modernise the monarchy. If you are one of the lucky Brits selected by lottery to receive a GP appointment before the big day, do consider purchasing it and popping your medication in it. In the meantime, you have to ask, how confidence-inspiring, really, is any event that has thus far been defined by about 4,000 articles and counting about the attendance or non-attendance of a couple of guests? Nothing says, we're bigger than that and have moved on, like obsessing over the social plans of two California residents. This event is so inspiring and generational and monumental that the sole thing people can get truly worked up about is how their worst person in the world isn't coming to it. Surely the one interesting thing about King Charles isn't his fractured relationship with his younger son. And yet, the tale of the column inches seems to suggest it might be. For a couple we keep hearing are no longer important, the Sussexes do still seem to be the only subject in town. Royal experts, pro and amateur, act like they'd be lost without them. If the Sussexes had any sense, they would have accepted immediately, explained the male Sarah Vine, about three paragraphs after saluting the collective sigh of relief that Meghan would not be attending. The whole interminable saga is afflicted by more than a touch of the Schrodinger's invitation, with a yes-no able to be both right and wrong at the same time, if likely to induce fatal error one way or the other. Turning up would be an act of war. Non-attendance will garner endless headlines about insulting behaviour and what she's missing. Once again... One has to contrast the apparently undimmable ire directed at Meghan and Harry with the muted version enjoyed by Prince Andrew, who last year paid millions in an out-of-court settlement to a woman who had long accused him of sexual abuse when she was 17 after she was trafficked by his good friend Jeffrey Epstein. The Duke of York denies the allegations. If newspaper stories were any guide to what the public wanted, it would seem rather notable that Andrew's presence or non-presence at his brother's crowning were a far, far less feverish concern than that of the Sussexes. Queen Elizabeth II's coronation was scheduled to avoid a racing fixture. This one was timetabled firmly for Harry and Meghan's son's fourth birthday. Back in 1953, the Duke of Windsor, Edward VIII, as was, got told by Winston Churchill not to attend. Did the newspapers of the time wet their pants daily for several months about this minor detail of the day? It feels unlikely. Perhaps newspapers back then were made of stronger stuff. Or perhaps 
mindful about what happened at Sleeping Beauty's christening, His Majesty's press these days regard it as part of their solemn duty to hold every royal guest list to the very highest scrutiny, lest their readers end up being put to sleep for a hundred years by failure to cover the potential fallout from any NFIs or not-fucking-invited's. In a 24-hour period last Friday, shortly after Harry's attendance was confirmed, the Daily Express website featured a full 44 articles about the Sussexes, one of which suggested the couple's brand was on life support. Hand on heart, the Express and others do an awfully good job of suggesting otherwise. Back on the official channels, strong efforts are being made to get people excited about the approved royal menu for their subject's day. It feels somehow apt that the official dish selected by King Charles is a quiche, given quiches are often wet and almost always disappointing. Like some of Charles's recent walkabouts, the dish has been regarded as a good use of leftover eggs. Traditionally, Indifferent cuisine is a celebrated feature of royal occasions. Of a banquet on the eve of Elizabeth's coronation, Richard Crossman noted in his diary that the food was cold and not very good. Charles's official coronation quiche features tarragon, the king having failed to commit entirely to the bit and bung in that most divisive of herbs, coriander. Odd, finally, to read so little about the determined grumbling about the hundreds of millions to be spent on the coronation, which is a definite thing, from radio phone-ins to even the upper reaches of the Mail Online comments section. Defence of the cost has already seen a resort to the telltale line that it will be a boost to the economy. It also seems to have resulted in that great rarity, a bank holiday that doesn't draw from the woodwork some killjoy from a business body to explain how, actually, bank holidays are an unacceptable cost to the UK economy. Even so, the overriding impression given by all this is that without the attendance, or otherwise, of one or two non-player characters, there would be very little to say about what could be, for many, a -a once-in-a-lifetime event. That doesn't suggest a monarchy in the rudest health. Perhaps the proof of the quiche will be in the eating. That was How Is Britain Rising to This Inspiring Coronation Moment? By Obsessing About the Sussexes Again By Marina Hyde Read by Bryony Rule Finally... During lockdown, West End star Ruthie Henschel found herself waving to her mother Gloria through the window of her care home. Gloria died five weeks after Ruthie was allowed back in to see her. Ruthie tells Sam Wollaston about her campaign to ensure that no one has to die alone, alongside regaling him with stories of drinking martinis with King Charles. Read by Evelyn Miller. One day in June 2020, Ruthie Henshaw, actor, singer, dancer, star of musical theatre, went to visit her mother, Gloria, at her residential care home in Suffolk. This was the first time Ruthie had seen her mum for three months, not because she didn't want to go or through neglect, but because of lockdown. 
They had done a few Zoom calls, but there was only one iPad to go around the 50 or so residents in the home. It needed to be booked, and there had to be a carer free to help, so it only happened every couple of weeks. Then anyway, Gloria, who had Alzheimer's, didn't get on very well with Zoom. She thought she was watching us on television, says Henshaw. Visit is perhaps an exaggeration. Henshaw and her two sisters weren't allowed in. They could only go to the window and wave at their mother inside. She would wave back. She still recognised us. She couldn't understand why we couldn't come in, so she cried. That first time, Henshaw was shocked at the state of her mum. In three months, she had lost so much weight. She was in a chair all day. Some days they didn't have the staff to even get her out of bed. She'd lost the ability to chew, so they had to thicken her drinks and mush her food. She had stopped walking and she had stopped talking. It just wasn't mum. She puts Gloria's decline down to a lack of contact, lack of conversation, lack of love. Of course, these were extraordinary times. Covid was ripping through the place. There were no tests, vaccines were a long way off, 13 residents died in the first two months. The fabric of care was being stretched to breaking point. Henshaw understood the carers had to try to keep their charges safe. But it wasn't doing her mum any good. For someone with dementia, we are their eyes and their ears, their voice, their memories. People were screaming outside windows at carers because they would take residents away to bring someone else's loved one to the window. I've never seen so many people crying outside a building, says Henshaw, and she includes herself. After the waving visits, which she did every day, she was usually in tears too. This is how it went for months, waving and tears. The home did set up a tent in the garden for visits, but there was a plastic sheet between the visitors and residents. We weren't allowed contact or within two metres. She would put her arms out for a hug, we would have to keep saying, Sorry, Mum. Even when it started to open up outside, family bubbles of up to six people, testing, then vaccination, Henshaw didn't get to hug her mum. They battened down the hatches. They'd lost so many residents, had so many empty rooms and money lost, they weren't letting people in even when everyone inside had been vaccinated. We had been vaccinated, there was PPE, there were tests. They were still keeping them in their rooms 24-7. Henshaw thinks basic human rights were being denied. The right to be with another human being. The right to a family life. People in care homes are treated as second-class citizens. They're old, so people don't give a shit. But they're the people who fought for us, who brought us up, who paved the way for us. So she started to make a fuss. She talked to other people, such as Jenny Morrison and Diane Mayhew, who set up rights for residents in 2020, in response to what they said were the inhumane visiting policies placed on care home residents. Henshaw became an ambassador for them. The guidance was changing so often no one knew what it was. Different care homes were interpreting it in different ways. 
depending on what time it was or how the manager felt. It was a postcode lottery. Meanwhile, in Downing Street, that absolute clusterfuck by the government, Henshaw, 56, almost spits. When I heard about the drinks parties and everything going on there, I remember actually crying. Yes, I've done the timeline. While all the parties were going on, while they were snogging in corridors and raising glasses of champagne, I was stood at a window, waving at my mum, observing all the fucking rules like we all did. She didn't get to watch Boris Johnson giving evidence to the Privileges Committee the other day. She was working, rehearsing for 42nd Street. She's also just about to be on the telly in Coronation Street. But she doesn't for one second buy that he didn't know the rules. His rules were being broken. Bollocks, she says, typically forthright. What gets her most is that he never said sorry. No one did. She slips into an impersonation of the former PM, being shambolic and posh and evasive. Um, parties. Vaccine rollout, vaccine rollout, vaccine rollout. Henshaw lives not far from Clacton-on-Sea, where she made her debut at the Westcliff Theatre 38 years ago, aged 18. Since then, she's been in many West End musicals. She Loves Me, for which she won an Olivier Award, Crazy For You, Chicago, Peggy Sue Got Married, Marguerite. She has been on Broadway and on the telly, as a judge on Dancing on Ice and on I'm a Celebrity, though not in the jungle, because that was also during Covid. Instead, she went hungry in a cold Welsh castle. Home now is a cosy Hansel and Gretel thatched cottage that she shares with her daughters, Lily and Dolly, and Winnie, the cockapoo. She divorced the girl's father, actor and singer Tim Hower, in 2010. She wasn't expecting me today. There was a mix-up over dates. But I was there now, so she let me in and made coffee. Would you like the cunt mug? She asks. Oh, I don't know, maybe? She shows me a comedy mug given to her by a friend with a message on the side. We can literally only be friends if you are a bit of a cunt. It is, she admits, one of her favourite words, especially with ED at the end, to mean very drunk. Later, she will tell me how the current British monarch once got her c- very drunk. No, really. Oh, go on. Let's do it now. A bit of comic relief within the tragedy. She was dating his brother at the time. Edward. Phew. They met when he was working at the really useful theatre company and she was in Cats. One summer, Edward took her to Balmoral and they had a cookout at the lodge on Loch Mick. It all sounds very jolly. Charles gave Ruthie her first ever martini, quickly followed by her second. The Queen and Margaret started singing hymns, and Diana poked me from behind and said, stop them singing hymns, sing something else. And Margaret said, oh yes, what are you in at the moment? I was doing Les Mis, so I sang I Dreamed a Dream after two martinis. I must have changed key at least three times. It doesn't really matter whether interviewers like their subjects, and I'm here to talk to her about something specific, but I'm just going to say it anyway. 
It was a pleasure to spend a couple of hours with Ruthie Henshaw. She was warm, welcoming, full of tangents and funny stories. She made me laugh as well as very nearly cry. I guess that's what actors do. How did we even get on to the royal family? Because we were talking about Partygate, the cheese and wine and leaving drinks while Henshaw was waving at her mother through a window. And Elizabeth Windsor was sitting alone in St George's Chapel mourning her husband, remember? We're in the beamy living room now. That's Gloria on the wall, a black and white photo of her own coronation as Miss Ipswich, circa 1950. Gloria became an English and drama teacher. She would have loved to have been an actress or dancer herself, but she grew up in the war in a very poor family, so that was never going to be an option. When I entered the business, it was a thrill for her. I think those opening nights were an absolute joy for her. They were close, but Gloria wasn't an easy woman. She drank. She had a fiery relationship with her husband. Henshaw thinks she suffered from depression. When she got dementia, all that fell away. I know lots of people get vile, but she laughed again and got a kick out of life. For me, there was a great healing with my mum. That was taken away, again, by Covid and by care home policy. Henshaw did get in to see her mother again. Properly, not through glass or plastic, but in the flesh. It turned out that government guidance had decided that some care home residents might require additional support from relatives or friends and had established the role of essential caregiver, someone who could come and go more freely and more often. Once she discovered that, Henshaw was there, banging on the door, waving it at them, saying if they didn't let her in, she was going to campaign louder. They let her in in April 2021, more than a year after the first lockdown. When I first put my arms around her, she buried her head in my chest and moaned and cried. We cannot do without human contact. The carers too were happy. It was lovely to have someone from outside back in the home and to have a bit of help. One told Henshaw that the light had come back into Gloria's eyes. I would feed her, massage her, hug her, sing to her. Maybe I dreamed a dream, I should have asked. When they were all out of the room, I would take my mask off and kiss her. They had five weeks together. It was only after she was allowed into the home that Henshaw realised her mum was dying. One day, she noticed Gloria's breathing had changed. She told the staff, who called an ambulance. She said they could take her to hospital, but that Henshaw wouldn't be allowed to go with her. Henshaw asked if her mother was in pain, and they told her not. So the ambulance left empty. Henshaw wasn't going to let her go again, and Gloria wasn't going to go alone. I think I have a fear of dying alone, Henshaw says. The thought of it is horrendous. This is why I'm flagging this up to people. It could be you. It could be your loved ones. Henshaw has told her own daughters that if necessary, she wants them to take her to Dignitas. Thousands of people did die alone during the pandemic, forcibly separated from their families. Many stopped eating and drinking, or taking medication, 
because that was something they had control over. Without the emotional support that only a close relative or friend offers, many lost the will to live. In some ways, the Henshaws were lucky, though Ruthie wonders what difference it would have made to Gloria's health and well-being had she been allowed in sooner. She's not pointing fingers, naming and shaming. She's certainly not blaming carers who are underpaid and undervalued. It's about changing the system. The chances are, if there's another strain or another pandemic, the same thing will happen again. Actually, it is still happening. Some care homes are still restricting visits. It beggars belief to me that we are still having this conversation, having to fight for rights of residents three years down the line, three years of people being locked down. Last year, the care minister, Helen Waitley, said that she was determined to fix the misery, despair and anger at being kept away from someone you are desperately worried about. And yet, it's still not a legal right. That is what Ruthie Henshaw and the Rights for Residents group are campaigning for. A new law, so that anyone in a care home or hospital has the right to at least one care supporter, relative or friend, who can give in-person support to them in all circumstances. They're calling it Gloria's Law, of course. Gloria didn't die alone. Ruthie was with her. Not just Ruthie. She did break the rules for once that night. Though in the grand scheme of rule-breaking, I don't think anyone is going to get too upset about it. I snuck my two sisters in. There was a side door. It went straight to the room. There was no danger to anybody else. They put music on, read to their mother, lay with her, stroked her. We gave her the exit out of the world we wanted her to have. That was Ruthie Henschel. While MPs were drinking and snogging, I was waving at my mum through a care home window by Sam Wollaston. Read by Evelyn Miller. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles are read by Arazu, Bryony Rule and Evelyn Miller and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Helen Brown. The executive producer is Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. 
So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.